Chapter Fifteen of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter Fifteen. I would have you wise unto that which is good. Mrs. Arnold arose and gathered her lace shawl about her. Well, with a little sigh that might have been indicative of either relief or disappointment, I'm sure it's a new idea to me. I am very glad to hear that our pastor is governed by such motives. It may be, as you say, the means of doing good. At any rate, I shall take pains to let people know how self-sacrificing he is in leaving your delightful home and enduring all the discomforts of hotel life merely in the hope of doing some good. It is quite the martyr's spirit. And then the hostess followed her rustling collar from the room to endure as best as she could the finale of that terrible visit in the hall. That blessed little hypocrite is a benefactress to her sex, Mr. Sayles said the moment the door closed. She has actually given Mrs. Arnold a new idea, something that she hasn't received since her last call here, I'll venture. I say, you silent woman over in the corner there, don't you wish you were as prompt to discern new ideas as some people are? What do you think of our pastor's martyr's spirit? There is some truth in it, Dell said with sudden gravity. I think he has probably argued himself into believing this very thing. A sort of all-things-to-all-men arrangement, you know. He is just the sort of man to reason out such an idea and cling to it. Some ideas need a tremendous clinging to in order to have anything left of them, and I should say this was one of them. But I do sincerely think so, Dell said with earnestness. His ideas are peculiar, he has strange ways of reasoning, but I believe he has a hearty desire to do what will be for the best in the end. No doubt, Mr. Sayles said dryly. I haven't the least idea but that Mrs. Tresevant is also actuated by the same lofty motives. Have you? Something in his tone caused Dell to say, with a self-deprecating laugh, Mr. Sayles, I don't think you're inclined to help, as Abby calls it, a bit more than I am. I'm inclined to when I'm entirely under the influence of the blessed little woman herself. It is only the wicked spirit which your sympathetic nature arouses within me that exhibits itself to you. Why is it, do you suppose, that you and I are so prone to evil? I don't know, Dell said sadly. You are in jest and I am wholly in earnest. I would give anything in this world to have such a spirit as your wife possesses. I don't doubt it in the least, he answered eagerly. I never saw anyone like her. She lives in an atmosphere of purity. I should think you ladies would be specially inclined to jealousy, because, you see, her life is so entirely foreign in spirit to that which your sex generally exhibits. The spirit of nonsense was rampant in Mr. Sales this evening. If he chanced to commence a sentence seriously, it ended in anything but an appropriate manner. Generally, Dell was a match for him, but tonight something had subdued and softened her. She made no attempt to answer the thrust at her sex. Indeed, she felt the truth of the jestingly spoken words. Mrs. Sales entering at that moment, her husband turned to her. My dear, wouldn't it be well for you and me to go down to the Arbor Street restaurant to board? You know we might manage to gain an influence over people, with whom you certainly will never be likely to come in contact in any other way. For all answer, his wife dropped herself among the cushions of the couch whereon he was lounging, laid her head on his arm, and burst into tears. This proceeding was so extraordinary that it thoroughly sobered and alarmed her husband, 
and Dell turned from the piano stool where she had just seated herself and looked with silent amazement on her friend. She cried occasionally, not often, but now and then, sometimes in sorrow and sometimes in sheer vexation over somebody or something. But Abby, gentle, quiet, evenly poised, sweetly tempered Abby, indulged once in a while in a little bit of an almost inward sigh that scarcely ruffled her fair brow, but beyond that she had seemed to those most familiar with her to live above the storms and frets and tears of life. "'My dear child,' Mr. Sayles said, gravely and tenderly, "'what is it? What can possibly have grieved you so? Has that intolerable woman been putting the finishing touches to her silliness?' "'Oh, Jerome,' his wife sobbed out, struggling vainly with her tears. "'It is such a strange world. People seem really glad to discover something that is wrong. They seem to delight to talk it over. I don't understand anybody. I seem to say things that are not quite true, or at least to make people think what isn't so, you know, when I try to make any explanations, and I don't know what to do. The very breadth and compass of this pitiful wail seemed to strike her husband's ludicrous vein. Poor little troubled woman, he said in serio-comic tones. Couldn't she make the world over to suit her ideal? Would the people be just as stupid and just as wicked and just as silly, despite all she could do? It is a great discouraging problem at which other brains than yours have worked, poor child, and the world isn't righted yet. No, she said wearily, it isn't that I want to make the world over, I am not so foolish as that, but I want to keep a lamp trimmed and burning in my own little corner of it, and I seem to find it so impossible to do that. Mr. Sayles' fan had spent itself again, and his voice was tender and grave. Doesn't my wife sometimes forget that he who made the world, and who will remake it in his own good time, can look after the lamps in the little corners also? and so that she tries to do her own little bit of a part, cannot she trust the result of her sincere doing with him also, without attempting to lift any of the burden that he has promised to carry? Dell at this point slipped softly and silently from the room. This was one of the times when there was no need of a third party. It was in sentences such as these that the true manly character of her host came to the surface and deepened her respect for him. They were not unusual sentiments coming from his lips. There was nothing in them to surprise Dell. She had never known Mr. Sayles before Grace had wrought its change on his heart and life. Dr. and Mrs. Douglas often looked on in silent astonishment at the transformation of this once frivolous, worse-than-useless life. But to Dell, her host had never been other than the earnest, faithful, working Christian that she saw him now. So she went out from them and left them alone. She had often done so before, sometimes with an unconscious touch of sadness in the act, when the thought came home to her with special force that there were times when all her dearest friends were sufficient to each other, and that she really was not needed anywhere. There was none of that feeling on the evening in question. She went out and stood on the piazza, and as the low murmur of Mr. and Mrs. Sayles' voices came to her from time to time, she bestowed sundry little loving pats on a letter in her pocket, and thought, with a happy smile, of one place where she really was particularly needed. Well, this family were particularly busy during the next few days getting the minister moved. Jane worked with untiring energy and patience. Was it to prove her penitence, or was it an outburst of her satisfaction over the turn of affairs? Her mistress chose to think the former. 
Mrs. Arnold's tongue was busy also. Her new idea fairly haunted her. She gave it utterance wherever she went, until Mr. Tresevant found, much to his surprise, that he was a martyr to principle. In truth, the poor man had been thinking, ever since he came to himself, that he was a martyr to his wife, or his temper, or something. He actually shivered when he paused long enough in his work of packing to look around his beautiful rooms, beautiful even in their confused and partially dismantled condition, and remembered for what he was leaving them. But when this new phase of the case came to his ears, after a little bewildering turning over of the matter in his own mind, he accepted the situation, and twenty-four hours thereafter you could really have found it difficult to convince him that his main, nay, his sole reason for all this bustle, was not because of certain new ideas of his in regard to mingling with and gaining influence over that special class of beings who frequent hotels. There was a general calming down in the sales household after the bustle of removal was over, and things had settled into their proper places. Not one of the loyal hearts said aloud, How nice it is to have them gone, but Dr. Douglas and his wife came oftener and stayed longer, and Mr. Sale's tones took on a light-heartedness that his wife had missed, and Jane was the very personification of beaming satisfaction. The first Sabbath thereafter was beautiful with summer glory. The Regent Street Church was duly filled with worshippers, among them Mr. Sale's family. Dell's face was unusually grave. In truth, Dell's heart was sad during these days. Into the joy and brightness that had come to crown her life there had crept a solemn sense of her unfitness, of the standing still that there had been about the summer, of the little that she had done for the master, beside the much that she had intended. Happy she had been, joyous, but it seemed to her not helpful. She tried to give attention to the sermon. Indeed, it was the solemn ring of the text that had set her heart to throbbing out its sense of unprofitableness. This one thing I do, announced the preacher, and Dell's heart had murmured, Ah, no, I don't, I profess to. Before God and men I have pronounced it the one great thing, before which all others must give way, in which all others must be absorbed. Yet in my life I have said, There are a hundred things of equal importance, I will do them first. Very sadly, very humbly, she realized this as her position with God a person of many aims, many excellent intentions, working out very few of them, working out none of them with the singleness of heart and life which characterized the noble old hero who had made these words of his the aim of his life. But there was that in Dell's nature which always made a quick rebound. She lingered but a little in the valley, forgetting the things which are behind, said the hero of old. Could she do better than to follow his words? Behind her were shortcomings and neglects, being sorry because of them, bringing her sorrow to the great burden-bearer, could she do better than to put it from her now and gird the armor anew? Such, at least, was her nature, so she turned her thoughts to the sermon, if, perchance, that would give her a fresh impetus. But, alas, the preacher of the present day occupied his precious half-hour of time in glorifying that grand old saint, who had been in heaven for hundreds and hundreds of years, and needed not the poor little crown of laurel that earthly eloquence could weave for him, he who had won the crown of glory in his father's house so many, many years. If only the preacher of today could use Paul's words, as surely he would have wished them used, as incentives to present higher life and holier attainments, leaving him to rest in his blessed heaven, how useful could he be! 
but Mr. Tresevant went back over the life of St. Paul, reveled in it, waxed eloquent over it, stopping not once to ask, Brother Christian, are you striving thus to live? Dell presently gave up her effort to follow out the sermon. It was a grand life, it was worthy of eulogy, but her heart sought for something that morning which would lift her personally nearer to the great source of all such holy living. So she went back to the text, This one thing I do. Couldn't she make this her motto? This wonderful man that the preacher was exalting to such a pinnacle of glory had himself sobbed out, For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Not a word said Mr. Tresevant of this. His hero for the day had gone up above the clouds and storms. He did not sound like a man, rather like some powerful angel. But some way it comforted Dell's sin-stained heart to go back to those words of pitiful confession, The good that I would I do not. Here, at least, she and Paul the sinner met on common ground. And she remembered, just then, with a thrill of thanksgiving, that the same voice had exclaimed in triumph, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He had conquered, not through wondrous human strength, but through Christ. Her Christ, not Paul's alone, but hers. Could not she conquer too? Nay, could she not make bold to reach after and lay hold of these very words, this one thing I do, I press toward the mark? Working, pressing, struggling on, reaching out right and left for those about him to come to. That was St. Paul's life, through Christ which strengthened him. So it came to pass that before Mr. Tresevant had completed his funeral eulogy over the glorified saint, there had been born into Dell's heart a new desire and purpose, a new determination to do with her might whatsoever. I'll take that for my motto, she said eagerly, whatsoever, then it will be in Christ's hands, and he will bring it to pass. End of chapter 15 Recording by Tricia G.